0: Good morning, my name is Matt, and I serve here on the Elder Council, and today we will be reading from Scripture, uh, Luke 13, 10 through 17. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years, she was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed." and not on the Sabbath. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrite, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from the bonds on the Sabbath day? And he said all these things, All his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. You may be seated.
1: Thank you, Matt. Good morning. Good to be here with you again this morning. I was grateful for Seth uh, preaching for us last week. I really appreciate uh, his sharing from the word for us last week as a few of us were up at a uh, men's retreat uh, in the Sweet Home area. We are going to be this morning in Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 21. So if you want to find that in your copy of Scripture, you can join us there. Let's pray and ask God to give us help as we look at his word. Lord, we thank you for your word. We're grateful, God, that we can read it and understand it, even in our own language. We're grateful, God, most of all, that your Holy Spirit is the one who shows us what you need to communicate to us. You reveal to us the condition of our own hearts, and you move us to repentance and rejoicing and encouragement and conviction. And we pray that you would do that this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. There have been a lot of different kinds of kingdoms in the world. Let me just list a a few uh, from your Bible. There were the Assyrians. Have you heard of the Assyrians? The Assyrians had a reputation for being brutal. Uh, In Amos, Amos refers to the Assyrians coming and taking the wealthy people out of their mansions and leading them away by fishhooks. That seems brutal because it was true. They would, they had kind of chain gangs and they would fish hooks, and they would run it like you do a fish hook, through the cheek, and that's how, that tends to keep people in line, you tend to stay near the group, and so the Assyrians were known for their brutality, a complete disregard for human life and suffering, so the Assyrians were brutal, and then you have the Babylonians, the Babylonians were violent, uh, but they also realized that if the countries they conquered were prosperous, they also would prosper. So while they wanted everybody to serve them and they wanted the kingdoms they conquered to uh, submit to them, on the other hand, they realized that a scorched earth policy is not making anybody any money. And so we're going to destroy you and we're going to let you know that you are lucky to be alive. On the other hand, uh, plow your fields and get a good crop and send us your tribute. So the Babylonians were brutal, uh, but they were a little bit more practical. Then you have Greece. The Greeks, of course, are well-known for their intellect and, and the, uh, the, the swift and, and powerful overtaking of much of the world by Alexander the Great. And uh, we're all familiar with sort of their military might. And maybe the one we're most familiar with is Rome. And maybe when you think of Rome, you think really of a military machine. Uh, they had the ability to come in. And they just knew how to, how to conquer a people. They were a little bit different than the Assyrians and the Babylonians, though, the, the Romans wanted local local areas to maintain their distinct culture, because they were kind of like the Babylonians. You know, if a, if a region that we conquer is, is prosperous, we make money. And we've realized that local regions are more prosperous when they get to hold on to their culture. And so they would put up with quite a bit, and then eventually, if you didn't toe the line, they would wipe you out, kind of like they did Jerusalem in AD 70. So all of these kingdoms had these, these reputations for violence and practicality and cultural interests and academic interests and all of them had these these reputations. so the question we have going into this today's passage is what kind of kingdom is Jesus kingdom what's the reputation of his kingdom what's the manner in which the Jesus kingdom expands if Jesus kingdom like these other kingdoms is going to be an expanding kingdom what's the manner in which it expands how does it do that and then a final question for us as individuals, knowing what his kingdom is like, what its reputation is, how it expands, how do I fit into it? What does that mean? If you want to be successful in the Assyrian kingdom, what did you need to be? Brutal. If you want to be successful in the Greek kingdom, you might want to be an academic. If you want to be successful in the Roman kingdom, you might want to be a fantastic military officer. What does it mean to fit into the kingdom of Jesus, and the title is in your worship folder, and so I'll give away the answer. Jesus' kingdom is a gentle kingdom. And you may not like that if you like watching war movies, but stick with us. We'll... Oh, and by the way, the Bible isn't really overly concerned with what you like, so here we go. The gentle kingdom. First thing in verses 10 through 17, the gentle kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, has time to rescue. Jesus' kingdom as a gentle kingdom has time to rescue. Maybe even, we might even say interest, but has time to rescue. I mean, think about it. The other day, I was just driving home uh, from running an errand, and uh, a police car went by, you know, lights and sirens, and then a little while later, a fire truck went by, lights and sirens, and then I started thinking, I'm glad I'm going the other direction. Then uh, two ambulances went by, and I said, I think something bad happened. Somebody's having a really bad day. found out later there had been a car wreck up on Columbus. And so when, when emergency vehicles go by with lights and sirens, some of you, here's the new information and your application point, you're supposed to pull over and make way. The idea is that something important is going on. It's more important than wherever you need to be, so pull over so the ambulance can get by or the police officer or the fire truck can get by, and you're supposed to pull over. And don't you find it annoying when people don't? Have you ever been in the intersection and, and there's lights and sirens going off and some yahoo... You give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they didn't see the bright lights in the loud siren. Yeah, whatever. So it's frustrating when selfishness gets in the way of someone getting the help that they need. And what we discover about Jesus' kingdom, as we're going to look at it here in just a moment in this passage, is Jesus had time and he had concern and he had initiative to want to address the needs of the oppressed Especially those who are suffering at the hands of the enemy, the devil. Jesus had time and concern to reach out and help those who were oppressed by the enemy, and he uh, loudly and clearly confronts anyone who would stand in the way of his rescue mission. Look at verses 10, 11, 12, and 13 here in Luke chapter 13. Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. So he's in a synagogue. There was a synagogue in many uh, Jewish communities during the first century. The synagogue is not something that was instituted by the Old Testament or the Old Testament law. If you wanted to commune with God and his people, you went to the temple. So the the synagogue really uh, operated as sort of an outpost for the temple, a place where people could go during the week when they weren't going to Jerusalem during high feast days, maybe two or three times a year. They go to the synagogue and hear the uh, the law read, and they could hear from the synagogue leaders giving them application. Here's what the law says, and here's how you ought to live your life. And it also a place for the community to make connection. Really, really important during those days that they had those relational connection. And Jesus is in the synagogue teaching on the Sabbath. And it wasn't unusual for a rabbi like him to go into a synagogue and be asked, hey, you got something to share? You don't want, you, you want to share something? So Jesus is is in the synagogue teaching, and he's teaching on the Sabbath, which is it's totally appropriate. And you know what the Sabbath day is, seventh day of the week, and according to the Old Testament law, you were supposed, not supposed to work. And really, this was rooted in God's creation of the world. Remember, God created for six days, and on the seventh day, God rested, because he was really, really, really tired. Now, God doesn't get tired. God doesn't get tired. He's just done with his work. And then building on that rhythm, because we're made in God's image, the people of God were told on the seventh day, don't do any work. We first see this in the wilderness wanderings after they left Egypt. They didn't have any food, and God had manna show up on the floor of the desert. And they would get up in the morning, six days of the week, and collect just enough manna for that day. So every day, how much manna do you start with? Zero. And then at the end of the day, you ate it. And if you had any left over, you're supposed to discard it if you kept it overnight, In the morning, it would be rotten. So you had to discard it. So every day, you were depending on God. However, on the sixth day, you could collect twice as much manna because on the Sabbath, you weren't supposed to collect manna. In fact, there wouldn't be any out there. And on the Sabbath day, when you got up, the leftover manna, it was fine. It wasn't rotten. And if you got up out of your bed with your jar thinking, look, I got plenty of manna for today. I'm going to go collect some more Moses would get annoyed with you. It's Sabbath day. Sit down. Chill out, bro. I think that was in the Hebrew. This was built into the Sabbath rhythm of the law for the people of Israel. On the Sabbath day, they were supposed to, it was supposed to be a day of rest. And rest is not merely a day of less work and relaxation and recuperation, although it is that. It's primarily a way of depending on God. Because when you're not working your field is not being weeded, your food is not being put up, your animals aren't being tended to maybe the way you normally would. It's a day of saying, I can rest because God will take care of me. So Sabbath day was always intended to be a way for the human to rightly relate to their God. God has it. I can take the day off. So this is the day in which Jesus was teaching in this synagogue. And and it turns out there was a woman there, and she was, had a disabling spirit for 18 years. Very strange way to talk about her malady. She both had a physical ailment that was also clearly spiritually caused. So she had some sort of ailment. I have no idea what. I'm not an orthopedist, but apparently she was unable to straighten up. So I don't know if she had an issue with her, the muscles in her back or in her torso or if her spine was out of whack or, or what it was. The Bible doesn't say. But what the Bible does say is that it was caused by the enemy, the devil. Look down at verse 16 very quickly. Jesus describes her as a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years. So for 18 years, Jesus describes her condition, which is a physical condition that is being caused by the enemy. So she had this disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over could not fully straighten herself up. You could imagine what it would be like living today with this sort of disabling condition, the inconveniences it would cause, much less in those days where there is no dishwasher or washing machine uh, or mobility devices, uh, where much of your life was highly dependent on your mobility and your physical engagement of the world around you. And so here she would have been really dependent on others and really suffering a lot. Doesn't necessarily say she was in physical pain, but certainly her life was very, very difficult as a result. Jesus saw her. He was paying attention. He saw her, and he called her over to himself. Woman, you are freed from your disability. Now, first of all, I don't want you to get offended at Jesus. He calls her woman. If you Nowadays, if we were to address a woman in that way, that might be considered rude. Uh, give it a try. Um, <laughs> see what happens. Address your, your wife or your mother in this way and see how that rolls out. It's, it's, a, it's a polite term. Ma'am, lady, it's a polite term. He's not being rude. And besides, I'll, I'll say this too. If he was being rude, Jesus, he's kind of God. If he he wants to be rude, he can do that. But he wasn't, because we know he was here showing compassion to this woman, and he wanted to communicate something about himself and something about his kingdom in this moment. He says to her, woman, you are freed from your condition. Then verse 13, importantly, he puts his hands on her, and she was able to straighten up. Now, if you think of how Jesus healed people in the Gospels, remember, he healed people in lots of different ways. There was times that he spoke and demons came out. There were times that he would spit on people and heal their sight. There was times he would spit on the ground, make mud, and wipe it on their eyes. There were other times he healed people and they weren't even there. Go back, your servant's fine. And the guy goes back and he says, what time did the servant get, get better? And he realizes that was the very moment that Jesus said, your servant is healed. So Jesus has the ability because he's God to do what he wants. So if he is laying hands on this woman, he's doing it for a reason. What are the reasons? And there are two primary reasons. He lays his hand on this woman who's bent over. Number one reason, he wanted her to know he cared. He wanted her to know that he didn't merely want her to get better, he wanted her to know the Savior of the world, God Himself, sees her and knows what she's going through and that physical contact communicates a kind of affection that cannot merely be communicated verbally. And so he put his hands on her so she knew, daughter, I know what's going on, and I make you better. Another reason, though, he made, put his hands on the woman for healing her was this. He wanted to make sure the synagogue leader knew, bro, I am working up in here, this, I don't want you to think, well, this isn't really work because he only did words. He's a, no, working synagogue leader, you're about to get riled up. Here we go, working. He wanted, he's making a point. I want, I'm here in the Sabbath. I'm here in the synagogue on a Sabbath, and I want to, I want to mess some people's worldview up. And so I'm going to make sure they know this healing isn't a passive engagement. I'm working because he wants to really make a point. He heals the story on this day of rest, a day uh, when people are supposed to be worshiping God through rest. What does he provide for this woman? Rest. Probably the first time in 18 years she was able to breathe a sigh of relief. And he gives her rest. And then look what she does at the end of verse 13 she glorified God. There was a lot of people in the synagogue on the Sabbath. There was only one person observing the Sabbath in this synagogue, and it was this woman. Because she was at rest in her Savior, and she, because of her rest, was doing what? Worshiping God. So she gets it. She gets Sabbath. She gets worship. She understands what Jesus is like, and we understand what Jesus' kingdom is like It's a gentle kingdom that has time to rescue someone such as this woman. Jesus initiates this healing act as an act of compassion and to let people know what the Sabbath day is really about. Let's look at the synagogue leader. This is verse 14. But the ruler of the synagogue... Let's stop there just for a minute. Why do we have a ruler of a synagogue? You know, I don't want to... I don't want to throw the guy under the bus, but we will. It, he, had a, he had an important job, and, he, and his job was a critical one for the people of Israel. Really, his job was to provide the place where the people of Israel could continue to recognize their identity is in God their Father, the one who has called them as a people. And the way that they would do that is to gather together as a people and understand what does the word, the, the law teach us, and how is that law worked out in real life? And so he would, they would read passages of Scripture, and then they would discuss ways in which that law would be applied. Questions might come up. You know, they're reading through Leviticus, and they're talking about mold in their walls. And do I have to scrape the plaster or not scrape the plaster? Do I have to tear the whole house down or, or not tear the whole house down? Can I just get some tylex? Do I have to burn the whole house and take it outside to a place that is unclean? These kind of questions would come up. You know, questions like, well, okay, the law says I can't harvest all the way to the the edge of my field. How close is not to the edge of my field? How far can I go? How close can I get to the edge? And So the synagogue leader has an important job. He also wants to encourage people during this time of difficulty. They're a, a Jewish people called by God to be his God, to show fidelity to the covenant promises of God, and they're living in their promised land, and Rome is in charge. So there would have been great suffering and difficulty. It would have been so critical for this synagogue leader to provide the support and help that this people would have need needed to continue to worship God according to the word that he has, has given them. And then God himself shows up at his synagogue, which is incredible. Wouldn't that be funny as a synagogue leader? Oh, God's here. Well, good. I get the day off. That's what he should have done. Like, since God's here, there's really no need for a synagogue leader. But instead, the synagogue leader is going to sit in the back and want to make sure God follows the rules. So he was indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. Now, this was a big deal. It was appropriate for a guy to be indignant when somebody breaks the Sabbath. Moses was mad when people broke the Sabbath. One guy got stoned to death for collecting sticks. They took the Sabbath pretty seriously. But Moses got real riled up when people would get up to collect manna on the Sabbath. He would, he would get upset about it. The Sabbath was a, a big deal. The people of Israel, especially after they went into captivity in Babylon, they took the, the Sabbath even more seriously because Jeremiah makes it so clear the reason you're in Babylon is you broke the Sabbath. You didn't give your land its rest, and you didn't give its people the rest. So now these folks are taking Sabbath really, really serious. Because they're hoping maybe if we take it serious, Rome will go away. So, so he is taking the Sabbath really, really serious. So Jesus heals this person, and here's what he says. There are six days in which work ought to be done, so he knows immediately Jesus is working. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. That seems reasonable, doesn't it? She, how long has she been bent over? 18, 18 years. Can she not wait like one more day? Like, why not come back tomorrow? Old Testament's happy. You're happy. Everybody's happy. Why didn't Jesus do it that way? Why didn't Jesus see the woman and say, I'll see you tomorrow? I mean, couldn't she make it one more day if Jesus said he's going to heal her tomorrow? Yeah, but again, Jesus is here making a point. It's critically uh, important. This ruler is mad, but here's what we have to pay attention to about this synagogue leader. There's two things in this scenario that should make a person mad. One, the Sabbath day being broken. That got him riled up. What's the other thing that a person could be mad about? Someone is in your synagogue oppressed by the devil. Shouldn't that irritate you? I mean, shouldn't, we I mean, have got a couple of things we've been mad about. Somebody got better on the Sabbath, somebody picked up a stick, somebody lit a fire, whatever it might be, or we got somebody oppressed by the devil. What should be more aggravating? So this is where the synagogue leader has missed it. He's mad about the wrong thing he's mad about, he has failed to, to be properly frustrated with the reality that satan is, is oppressing one of the folks who comes to his sabbath comes to his, his synagogue in fact the way that he approaches this let's be honest he doesn't even seem terribly be, terribly bothered by the fact that she's had this oppression and why would that be the case because a common religious perspective in that time almost every time, is this, if something bad is happening to you, it's because you've done something naughty. And that was a common religious perspective. And, and that was likely his perspective, is the reason she's being oppressed by the devil and she hasn't been able to stand up for 18 years, Is she, there must be something in her background, or something in her parents' background, or something in their parents' parents' background. Jesus was asked this question one time about a guy who was born blind. Who has sinned that this guy was born blind? Was it him or was it his parents? What a crazy question. What did Jesus say? I made him blind on purpose so I could heal him. That's why he's blind. And this synagogue leader shows no compassion, no care for this woman. He's completely missed what the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is a gentle kingdom that has time to rescue. Did this man have the tools necessary to see her delivered? Yes, he had He had the law. He should have known what God was like. He should have known how to seek the Lord in prayer. This was not a mystery. The ruler was mad about the wrong thing. Come back tomorrow. The ruler displayed absolutely no displeasure in the woman's condition. He had no time on the Sabbath for being nice to people. 15 and 16. Jesus answers him with theology and reason, and the two are related, and we should remember that. The Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Now, again, uh, don't call the women in your life woman. And generally, don't call people hypocrites unless you're Jesus. Um, Unless you want to say us hypocrites, then go for it. So Jesus says, you hypocrites. So what he is trying to show, he is now going to use logic and theology to show what you want to have happen is actually different than what you actually do. That's what hypocrisy is. Hypocrisy is communicating value with my mouth and living as though that value isn't true. I think people should pull over when the ambulance is going by. That's what I might say, but if I never do, I'm a hypocrite. So what the guy is saying is you shouldn't heal on the Sabbath, and Jesus is going to show how He already does that. And so this is what he says. Don't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it to water? Okay, so you have an ox or you have a donkey. And on the Sabbath day, they need water. And there, and there was religious documents, ways in which to understand the Old Testament law. So you go to the Old Testament law, what does it say about the Sabbath? rest don't work but then you say well what kind of work how far can i walk how much uh, how much work can i do can can i breathe that feels like work to me right and so they came up with a lot of ways to apply the truth of the law and they finally say you know what on the sabbath it's not really work to take your donkey to the well there was even one document that they had that actually showed the only wells you could use because they were in close enough proximity to your home so you could go to your synagogue leader and say, "Sabbath today is coming up, and and my well has run out of water. Can I take it to Bill's well?" And he would look at it and he might go and pace it off. You say, "You know what? Yeah, I think you can do this, but but don't go sideways on. You got you're gonna have to make a straight run at this. You know, because that if you go too much further than Bill's well, you're working. And so you're allowed to lead your donkey. There were lots of little things, applications of the law. So if if, you're, if your donkey, Jesus says it later, if, you're, if your sheep or your donkey falls in a pit, wouldn't you get it out of the pit on the Sabbath? You're like, no, you're fine in the pit. I'll come get you. No, they would get the, they would get the donkey out the pit. That's what they would do. And so what he's saying is, to the synagogue leader, you're, you're a hypocrite. If you had a thirsty donkey on the Sabbath, you would take him to the well. Now Now all of a sudden you realize how big a I'm trying to think of words I can use that won't get me fired. (laughs) I can't think of any, so. So this is the Sabbath day, likely, in all likelihood, my guess is, and this is me just interjecting into the text, my guess is this guy did it this morning. That morning, he had walked that stupid donkey to the well, and he may have had to struggle with it, if you've ever led a donkey. I'm talking about the animal. I'm not talking about the people in your life. Have you ever led a donkey to the well? It was likely more work for this guy to water his donkey than it was for Jesus to heal this woman. And then he shows up at the synagogue, and he's all peeved off that she's walking upright. Do you see the hypocrisy that's going on here? And the issue is, in all of his religious uprightness and theology and, and, and maybe some of the good work he's doing for his Jewish community in this city. He has completely missed the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, someone whose heart is moved by the kingdom of God would have seen this woman and been moved to compassion. If you couldn't heal her, you would carry her somewhere. You would do something. What do you, do you need me to make you a meal? Do you need me to water your donkey? What, that's what a, a kingdom person would be moved to do because that's what Jesus' kingdom is like because Jesus has time to rescue. So, so the question is, why, why do people act like this synagogue leader? And, he, and here's the reason is this, is because these kinds of religious systems, just like any religious system, including many ways that Christianity today is expressed, are designed not to provide benefit to the individual in the kingdom. They are designed to propagate an institution, and that's what he has going on. He doesn't want the synagogue to go away, because if people start flouting the Sabbath, well, then what in the world do you need a synagogue for? You don't need a synagogue leader if people can do anything they want. What if people all of a sudden could just be forgiven of all their sins? You don't need a priest. Well, what are the priests going to do for work? And so, what would happen is these religious systems are not designed for, for people to find God. Instead, they're designed to make sure that, that an institution continues on. It's about power and it's about control. Jesus doesn't need any more power, God. He doesn't need any more control. He's God. What he wants to do is, is rescue people like this woman from the, from the control of Satan. Verse 17. As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. They were exposed. This synagogue leader and the religious elites like him were exposed that they, they didn't care about the woman. Jesus, though, cares about the woman, and his kingdom has time for the struggles of people like her. Why is Jesus' kingdom like this? Why would Jesus' kingdom heal a woman like this? Think about God's plan to redeem people. It starts in Genesis chapter 3. God is talking to Adam and Eve, and he said, Don't worry, the seed will come, and he will crush the serpent's head. So here with this woman bent over, Jesus lets the devil know, It's coming, bro. Your head is going to be crushed. Because his mission has always been a rescue mission. It's always been a rescue mission. It's always been a plan to redeem people out of lostness and judgment into the community of God and peace with God. Rahab is another example of that. She's a person who finds herself in a city condemned by God for its sin. The only way to escape condemnation is to leave that city and join the people of God. And what does she do? She leaves that city and joins the people of God, escaping judgment. Because the mission of God has always been a rescue mission. Many times I've heard people ask this. Why did God destroy Jericho? You know what the better question is? Why would he save Rahab? See, it's funny. We're so surprised that God would judge sin. What we should be surprised is that they would save anybody. And that's exactly what his plan is to do. It's a rescue mission. It's always been a rescue mission. So it still is. So all throughout the Old Testament, it's over and over again, I am coming. Moses said it, another prophet will come, even better than me. Isaiah says it, a servant will come, a suffering servant. He will will be so brutalized, you won't recognize him. And then Jesus shows up, and he shows us he's on a rescue mission. And how does he do that? He dies on a cross. And he says, I'm here to save you from your sin. Being bent over is terrible. That's, That's bad. It'll ruin your whole life. Sin ruins your eternity. And so what Jesus shows up to show us is I am here. This is the whole point, to save you from your sin. Save you from your enemy, both the devil and death. So Jesus goes to the cross. He dies on the cross, taking on himself the penalty for our sin. And he raises from the dead. So therefore, anyone who trusts him, just like this woman did, anyone who puts their faith in him, he rescues. Your sin is forgiven, you're given eternal life, and you have purpose in the kingdom of God. That's what his kingdom is about. It's a gentle kingdom that's bent on rescuing people who need help. Military kingdoms, academic kingdoms, brutal kingdoms don't care about rescue. Gentle kingdoms care about rescue. And that's what Jesus' whole kingdom is about. That's what this king is like. He's a rescuing kind of person. The gentle kingdom has time to rescue. If Jesus has time to rescue a woman from the devil, he has time to rescue us from our sin. Let's look at the last two little parables. It's verses 18 through 21, two little illustrations Jesus gives. I read an article one day. They, They interviewed little girls, like toddlers, three and four years old, and it was a Father's Day thing. What do you wish your dad would do different? And uh, one of the most popular answers, it's fine, dad. So dad's like, oh, here it comes. No. Wish you would walk slower. <laughs> because toddlers are terribly practical. You know, you, you, and you don't think about it till later, but, you know, when you're walking with your, with your little girl and you're holding hands, your one stride is six of hers. <laughs> and so your normal walk, you know, she's, you know, got, got pretty good high-end RPM, but not real good top speed. And, uh, and and the, and to tell them, I wish you would walk slower. It's walking with him is like going for a jog, you know. Dad's walk a little slower. Here's the thing about what Jesus. We're going to discover here about his kingdom. Jesus slows down. And he walks with us. Jesus walks our pace with us. He reminds us that his kingdom is accessible to anyone. Anyone who believes in him and trusts him can find their way into the kingdom. You don't have to be an all star. The gentle kingdom is accessible to everyone. Let me read the two parables. They're very brief, 18 through 21. Jesus said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said to them, what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven, that is yeast, that a woman took and, and hid or put in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Here's two little illustrations about how the kingdom of God grows. One of the things about modern companies, uh, getting a job with modern companies, a lot of times you'd be very competitive, especially down in, in the Bay Area, in uh, Silicon Valley, a lot of tech companies. I mean, think of how some of these tech companies have grown. I heard on the radio the other day, I think Google just celebrated its 25th uh, anniversary, and, and the person on the radio was asking, do you remember what it was like uh, before there was Google? It, and I do, uh, you know, but there's kids in here. You mean there was a time when there was no Google? Yeah, there was. <laughs> One writer pointed out, he said, there used to be a time where you would sit around the table and somebody would ask a question, hey, who was the second baseman for the Yankees when they won their last championship? And everybody go, gee, I can't remember. And you'd have to leave the table not knowing. Like somebody said, so I hope the next time we get together, somebody finds out what that was. And none of us know. I mean, now, nowadays, you know. Everybody gets their phone out. <laughs> gets their phone out. Everybody already had their phone out. <laughs> Look it up. Oh, yeah, it was whoever it is. I'm not a Yankee guy. So uh, tech companies, when they're recruiting, a lot of times their, their job placement or advertisement, it's a fast-paced environment. It's a competitive environment. This company is, is growth-oriented. They want to send the message to potential employees, for for tech companies especially, is is get on board and fuel the rocket or get out of the way. That's also code for you no longer have a life. We now own you. And you're going to work here because, and and you're incentivized to do so because you're going to have stock options and opportunities uh, to have us on your resume. But here's the thing about this, and it's intended to be this way because these companies want the highest performing individuals they can obtain, it leaves lots of people behind. Lots of people don't want to work in that kind of environment because they don't want to give up, sacrifice their personal life in that way. And this is what we discover about the kingdom of God. It's the gentle kingdom. It's accessible to everyone, not merely high performers. Jesus is going to describe the growth of his kingdom as something that grows in the same way plants grow. How fast do plants grow? Have you ever gone out and watched them? Not very fast. Other than zucchinis. I don't know what happens overnight. I mean, the night before, then you get up next to it, you got a football and you can't eat that thing. It grows like a plant. No one gets left behind. Since its growth is, is the result of people finding rescue, it, it grows at the pace in which people are rescued. No faster, no slower. The synagogue leader, because these two uh, illustrations are intended to contrast with the view of the synagogue leader, the rich and the powerful, they want to manipulate and manufacture fast growth, growth that can be predicted, systems that generate predictable outcomes, ways in which, especially for the synagogue leader, we can be ensured that we have a, a particular Jewish culture and the Romans never have the opportunity to wipe us out. We need to create systems that protect this, this thing that we have. And Jesus comes in and is the gentle kingdom. Anybody can get in because it grows at the pace of people finding rescue. Look at verses 18 and 19, this first parable. What's kingdom of God like? What should I compare it to? It's, it's like a grain of mustard seed. So, as you know, the mustard seed is... It's small. I don't know if we need too big a deal about that because the size of this mustard seed is not being contrasted with other seeds in the parable. It's being contrasted with the plant. All seeds are smaller than the plant, if I remember right. Is there any seed larger than the plant? Not that I know of. He's saying, look, you got a seed, and if you, then you got a plant. Wow, what happened here? Something got bigger. He said, this is the way the kingdom of God works. Is, is There's a seed, and, and over the course of time, It grows into something that that is magnificent. In in fact, it's described this particular mustard seed as growing into a a tree where birds make their way and they find rest, and it provides uh, shadow—a shadow, shade, I should uh, say—for cooling off in in the day. Jesus here is trying to temper the expectations of the people that want. We want the people of God. We want the Israel to take over Palestine again and kick out the Romans and. And, and see the glories of God's kingdom expanding in, our, in the promised land. And Jesus says, how about if we just start with the mustard seed? What are most people going to say in that moment? Well, it it's really disappointing. Because most of them are thinking of Ezekiel 17. Look at it. Ezekiel 17. Ezekiel 17, verse 22. Thus says the Lord God. Remember, Ezekiel was a prophet after the people had been taken into captivity in Babylon. And so people of Israel in the first century really related a lot to Ezekiel. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the top of the cedar, and I will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs, a tender one. I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that I may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree, and I make high the low tree. Dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it. Many people during Jesus' time, what is happening here in Ezekiel is there's a a sprig being taken from one cedar, and then this other big, awesome cedar is growing up. And this is often a symbol of kingdoms in the Old Testament. Uh, In Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar uh, was described as a tree where the whole world was under his shade. And he said, but your tree is going to be cut down, and you're going to be removed from power for like seven years. And so what, what the people of Israel thought of this passage in Ezekiel 17 is... They were in, in the first century, they were playing it this way. Well, the sprig is going to be taken from the big cedar, which at this point is Rome. And there's going to be a new tree that's going to take over, which is going to be a reimagined Israel. King David's coming back. And so, one of the things about Jesus' parable here is the plant he uses. What's the kingdom of God like? And everybody in the synagogue would have said, What? It's a cedar, it smells so good. It never dies, it never rots. It's, it's a cedar. And he goes, It's like a mustard tree. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> that would have shocked everybody. What do you mean it's a mustard tree? And this was his very underhanded way. I don't know if I could say Jesus was being underhanded. It just his underhanded way of saying, It's not what you expect. Your expectations have created something that's not happening. You think David's going to walk through the door and kick Rome out of Israel. That's not what's happening. You think the kingdom of God is a takeover mission. It's not. What kind of mission is it? It's a rescue mission. And who needs rescuing? Everybody. So he's already messing with their expectations by saying it's a mustard tree. Mustard tree? Nobody has mustard trees on their shields. Is it maybe? I don't know. Maybe they do. You're Googling it. Ah, 25 years ago, you couldn't fact check me in church. So, so he's got this mustard, and, and, and the growth of it is not, is not instant. Remember, the sprig is taken. It's a sapling. We have something. The, the mustard is starting from a seed. It's not even showing. You can't even see anything. There was a, 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 an outfit up in Portland years ago. It was called big trees. You might, I don't know if they're still in business, but you could call them up. Say you had a big maple tree out front, and it dies, or somebody hits it with a car and kills it. You could call up big trees and order full-grown trees. They're kind of expensive, just so you know, because you also have to bring, order a crane and a flatbed truck. But you could order trees so your maple tree dies. They haul it out, and the next day, your neighbor, wait, I thought your tree died. Did It's a new one, big trees. And that's what people want the kingdom of God to be like. We want the kingdom of God to just show up. Boom, kingdom of God. See you, Rome. And Jesus is ruining all their expectations. No, 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 no. We're going to plant a little seed. And what is everybody thinking then? Same thing you are now. We, can we get this going? Jesus, no. We're ready. And, and Jesus, no. My, my kingdom is accessible to anyone. It's not going to outpace anybody. I'm not going to outrun anybody. It's a rescue mission, not a takeover mission. Look at verses 20 and 21. Again, Jesus said, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like leaven. A woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leaven. Yeast worked into a dough. Jesus said, what... Putting leaven into the dough, uh, you work it through, and pretty soon it's everywhere. There's two kind of main points he's trying to to make with this description of yeast. Number one, once you put the yeast in, there's no taking it out. There's some bakers in here. Is there a way to take the yeast out? So that's one of the things he's saying is is once the yeast is in, the kingdom of God is in here, you're, you're not taking it out. The reality of the kingdom of God in the world is inevitable. There will be a day Jesus will rule and reign on planet Earth. That day is not a question. That day is on a calendar. I just don't have that calendar. It's inevitable. That's what Jesus is saying. You can't take the kingdom of God out. It's happening. What does he say to Peter? I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So the realities of the kingdom of God and his creation are inevitable. But the other thing he says is is clear here is... The, the, the work of yeast takes a little bit of time. You notice when you put the yeast in, the bread doesn't go poof. What you gotta do you got to do? You got to work it in. You got to knead it. I'm not a baker, but my understanding is you work it in. And then you set it on the thing, uh, the counter. or Is there a cabinet you put it in? Proofing cabinet. Look at that. I got words. So you put it in. And then you take it out. and I say, Holy cow, this thing got huge. And then it's really fun, you punch it and, do it, and then you do it again. So that's the yeast, though, it's not instantaneous. So he's saying, yes, the, the, the kingdom is inevitable. This is my creation, Jesus. It's my world. However, the reality of the work of the kingdom is going to be slower than maybe you would prefer. The growth will be gradual. It is going to lead to the majesty and glory of God revealed to all humankind. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, but it's going to go slower than you might have expected. Let me show you a couple of things from the Old Testament, just 30 or so. Ezra chapter 3. Ezra chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. Ezra uh, returned to the promised land from Babylon, and they were rebuilding uh, the temple. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, and the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, it was about 400 years before Christ, the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord according to the directions of David the king. And they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. He is good. His steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. Probably a, a take on Psalm 136. All the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because of the foundation of the house of the Lord had been laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men, just letting that sit there for a minute. Old men who had seen the first house wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted with joy. The people couldn't distinguish between the joyful shout and the weeping. The people shouted with a a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Why were they crying? They had seen Solomon's temple, and they saw this temple being built, and they were devastated. Oh, this is so lame. This is so lame lame. They were destroyed. We traipsed all the way from Babylon for you to build this little lean-to. I saw a, a, a temple coated with gold inside and out. And, and this is your foundation? Kids these days. Get off my lawn, I'm sure was the next. Haggai gives us some insight into it. Haggai chapter 2, verse 1. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah. He was the acting king. Joshua, the the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. And to all the remnant of the people and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? All the old guys raised their hand. How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Wow, that's now we're getting real. Okay. Be strong, Jeroboam, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all of you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came up out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, he says. Verse 6, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations, so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in, and I will fill listen this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts, this little puny house that they're building. I will fill this house with glory, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. listen to this, the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts and in this place I will give peace, declare the Lord of hosts." So Haggai says, you, "This puny foundation that you're winding over, it's going to be more glorious than Solomon's temple. That's what I will do," God says. I will make this more glorious than Solomon's temple. How was that even possible? This was the second temple that was built. This was the temple that Herod the Great renovated, and Jesus himself went to this temple after Herod's renovations. And look at what Jesus says about it in John chapter 2. We're going to make a point. We'll get to it. This sermon is like a mustard tree. <laughs> it takes a long time. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build the temple. They, they underestimated it. It's taken over 400 years. This temple was started 400 years before Christ. It's taken 46 years to build this temple. You will raise it up in three days? But he wasn't speaking about that. He was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered these things, and you and I are now remembering these things, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. How could the temple of Ezra's day have more glory than Solomon's temple? Because Jesus would tear it down and have his body be the temple. And there is no more glorious temple than that. So what Jesus is saying is is, is the, the work of the kingdom of God is the glory of the kingdom of God is fully found in his person as king. And his mission is a mission of redemption and resurrection. And his mission of redemption and resurrection will bring more glory to his kingdom than any That has preceded it. The gentle kingdom is accessible to everyone because Jesus came to save any who would receive him. The challenge of that synagogue leader is he had to choose what is more glorious, my synagogue or a risen Savior? My guess is he chose the synagogue. And that's the choice that ends up being at all of our feet. Which is more glorious? A lowly, savior that has time to rescue people like this woman, a lowly savior with a kingdom that is accessible to everyone and goes way slower than we want because he's more than happy to wait around for the slow pokes? Or do we want the glory of our kingdom? The general kingdom has time to rescue and is accessible to everyone because that's what the king is like. That's why the kingdom is this way, because that's what the king is like. couple of things to file away in the back of your mind, and then we'll close with prayer and, and a song. One thing to, that we can think about as, as followers of Jesus is what does it mean that to be like Christ in how we walk around in the world? One thing we can recognize is small things do matter. Little things do matter. Helping others does matter because that's what Jesus does. Having our heart moved to compassion and giving somebody a hand, even in small things, is good. I might even say it this way. If you see something that needs help, it's okay to just help and not start a movement. It's okay to just give somebody a hand. You don't need to set up a 501c3 nonprofit organization and fix all the world's problems. In fact, that's what keeps a lot of us from just helping somebody out. And say, well, I can't help all the people, so I won't help any of the people. And what we have to understand is it's okay in the smallest ways God brings into our life. The way to do this is when you see something that's going on, and maybe you've had this thought. Have you had this thought? Man, somebody ought to. You ever done that? Man, I hope they, I don't know who they is. Man, you know, they ought to. Well, that's you now. Because that's that's. Something is going on inside you, well, I can't, I don't, I can't help this person out because I can't help all the people out. Just give somebody a hand. You don't have to fix all the world's problems. Tell you what, if you fixed 1,000 problems this week, guess what? There's 2,000 new ones, so you're always going to be behind. It's okay to just be like Jesus and help somebody out. The way you look for it is when your heart is moved and you feel for somebody, you just simply, man, I, feel, I wish something was different. Has God given me the gifting, the resources to give him a hand? Why don't I give him a hand? Why don't I help him out? That's what Jesus said. We don't have to start a movement, recruit a team, start a nonprofit, set up a thing on Facebook. I don't know. Just give him a hand. That's what Jesus is like. You say, well, that seems kind of small. Mustard seed. Mustard seed. See, that's, that's the challenge here is we want to be a part of something that's a big deal. Guess what? You are. So now you don't have the pressure of being a big deal. You can just be like the king in little teeny ways that nobody will see and nobody needs to hear about. That's what Jesus is like. It's a gentle kingdom that has time to give help. Okay, now I'm going to meddle a little bit. Maybe you think I've been doing that the whole time. Sometimes we like to contract out our help. I'm about to get in trouble. Todd's like, oh, (laughs) give me a look. So, what we do is we write lots of checks. I'm going to hire lots of nonprofits in the community to do my help for me. You know, keep doing that. We got a lot of fantastic nonprofit work in our community U715, Salvation Army, Mercy's Gate. We got a whole list of them on our website. So, keep doing that. But what we're not, what we're talking about here is, is my heart wired? the way my king's heart is wired. And so what I need to realize is just because I have helped in a particular way by, by providing the resources for groups to do the things that are needed broadly, I need to make sure that I haven't now tried to sell to somebody else what my heart should be like. Just because I gave it the office doesn't mean I don't need to have my eyes and ears attuned to the ways in which I can engage lovingly with the people around me. Three areas where you can do that. Number one, in your home. Are you compassionate with the people in your home? Well, but they always, or the other one, but they never. Let me just give you a little tip. And this, I'm messing with the fellows here a little bit. Are you ready? Here's a way to show compassion in your home. Get off the couch. I don't know how many times I've been irritated because I just don't want to get up. The dog's irritating. Everything's irritating because I'm sitting. Once you're sitting, it's like inertia. You come home. You hit the couch. I'm attached. See you guys tomorrow. Part of it is just... And then, guys, what's great about us, because we're simple in many ways, once you're up, well, now I'm up. May as well get her done, you know? So the first step is just get up, get her done. I'm going to even give you a pass. Are you ready, fellas? You don't even have to do it happy. (laughs) Just get it done. The happy will come later. You'll get used to it. All right, don't, don't uh, keep my car on your way out. <laughs> Neighbors. Well, how do I know if my neighbor needs help? Here's how you do You know how you find out if your neighbor needs help? Go over to your neighbor. I'm just going to mess with you. Knock on his door and ask for his help. When you need something done around your house, instead of calling your brother-in-law and driving all the way across town... Go over to your neighbor and say, you know what? I could really use a hand with this light switch I'm putting in. I don't have a clue what I'm... You know how to do that? Yeah. If you ask your neighbor for help, what's he going to do when he needs help? He's going to come over and ask you. So one of the best ways to get to know your neighbors... Now, none of us like asking for help. See, it bothers you. But one of the way, best ways to have an inroad to knowing what's going on in your neighborhood is to knock on their door and, and ask would you give me a hand with this? I can't, I can't pull this off on my own. My name's my name's Greg. I've been living here 10 years. You and I have never met. You come help me with something. And now, if your neighbor came over to your house and asked you for help, what would you do? You would get at all. Oh, you were so excited. I got tools. I'm running out. Here we go. And, and so go and ask your neighbor, I need a hand with this. Well, what if I've got it? Ask for help anyway. Then you're not lonely. Ask your neighbors for help. Do this at work. What does it look like to look around the people you work with and realize somebody's stressed out and needs a hand? They need you to pitch in. Yeah, but they're lazy. The reason they're behind is they're idiots. (laughs) And the reason we abandon God is we're idiots. This is just being wired like the king. I'm helping people not because they deserve it and not because it'll pay off for me. I'm helping people because that's what my king is like. Well, but if I help this guy out, I think I might be competing with this guy for a promotion someday. Okay, well, you're going to have to decide which you like better, Jesus or your promotion. That's how that rolls. Do you want your heart wired the way your king's heart is wired? That's how you think about it. Finally, the kingdom of God invades the world like the mustard seed, and like the yeast, it grows slow. The goal is to see others as need in Christ and see others as opportunities expressing the work Of Christ And understanding that the kingdom is always going to be lagging behind our expectations because we want instantaneous kingdom, and that's not what's happening. So last one, and then I'm done. Stop looking back to the good old days. First thing, they weren't that good. Some of us were there. We have a really good way of forgetting all the stuff that wasn't that great and only remember the fond stuff, and it's mostly just because we don't like what's going on today. So looking back to the good old days does nobody any good. First, again, the main thing is they weren't as good as you remember. And if you're really honest, you remember they weren't. What we need to be looking forward to is the kingdom. And the kingdom isn't trying to get the glory of the good old days back. The kingdom is saying today, wherever we are today, who needs rescuing? Who needs compassion? Who needs to experience the love of Jesus? And I'm the one in this moment, and you're the one in your moments to do that. That's what we're going to And that's the glory of the kingdom. God's compassion in the gospel, leading people to life in eternity. Jesus, we thank you that you are a king who was gentle, that you came to rescue, that you're accessible to everyone. We thank you, God, that you saved us even though we were hard hearted and foolish and rebelled against you on purpose. We thank you, God, that even as Christians, we continue to foster many pockets of rebellion in our own hearts. We thank you, God, that your kingdom is one that is going to grow and is inevitable. Father, I pray in this moment there would be many here today who see what your kingdom is like and put faith in you for forgiveness. That they would move from a kingdom that is going to fail and into a kingdom that will last forever. I pray even now they would reach out to you in faith asking for forgiveness. God, I pray for those of us who are believers who have had our eyes set on so many different things, we have failed to see the, the work of your kingdom. To bring re- reconciliation and rescue and forgiveness and compassion. And instead, we've see, sought uh, false glories of large institutions, World reputa- worldly reputation. God, we pray that you would make us like our king, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand up as we close with a song.